Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is J.D. Haltingen, who is a professor of developmental and evolutionary psychopathology with a focus on early experience and life history at the University of Toronto. He also has a substack, J.D. Haltigan, and I'll link that down in the description. We talk about the status of academia, and we talk about evolutionary and developmental psychology and attachment theory and stuff of that note. I thought it was a very enlightening conversation, and I messed up the video, so it's just a photo of him and a photo of me for this one. I had a bad string of luck with my video camera lately, but if you're just listening to the podcast doesn't really matter. Without further ado, here is J.D. Haltigan. Are you really busy on, on the weekends? I try to I try to work as much as I can, especially on the weekends because I have four students and, you know, between <clears throat> having to deal with all the editorial responsibilities like normally during the week or regular, you know, regular professional emails, I can work with them more diligently because I work with them basically right over Twitter. I have like five or six students that, you know, I just zoom with on a regular basis. And, um, and what are they generally, uh, working on? So I have four students that have kind of self-selected who reached out to me. They're not necessarily undertaking a, um, a, a doctoral degree or a master's degree. They're actually just undergraduate, like advanced undergraduate students who are looking for research training and mentorship and we're working on a big meta-analysis of vagal tone and its relation to um how the environment uh relates to outcomes so how does the social context that one experiences influence behavioral outcomes like psychopathology or cognitive functioning or you know uh, adaptive functioning or what have you and the idea is that um, respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is a measure of heart rate, um, and it, you know, in terms of how how readily one can engage with the social environment, sort of plays a moderating or uh, dampening or amplifying role on how strong the social context can impact the relationship between the social context and some outcomes. So, you know, for example, if your caregiver is depressed. And you naturally have lower or higher respiratory sinus arrhythmia at baseline that might make the relation between growing up in that context and later anxiety symptomatology in yourself stronger or weaker, depending on what, you know, what, what we find. There's a particular theory that goes along with this differential susceptibility theory or the more general You've probably heard of diathesis of stress where, you know, an individual has a particular vulnerability and they, inter, you know, and they're involved or they're, they're interacting in a given environment and that vulnerability, whatever it may be, makes them more susceptible to negative outcomes or problematic behavior and so forth. Um, so we're kind of calling the empirical literature right now to kind of do a meta analysis on studies that have looked at this and 
the idea is to take stock of the field and sort of figure out where things are and, and what model differential susceptibility or diathesis stress best fits the data that's been looked at to, to this point. Um, so that's kind of where we are with that right now. But it's a huge undertaking because meta-analyses require systematic literature searches. They require the students to be, you know, these are these are advanced undergraduate students, medical students, some of them are, or in medical biology streams that want to go into medicine. So they're very advanced, but to kind of catch up on the academic literature is a huge task for even an advanced, you know, undergraduate student. So I've had them reading just immensely. And um, because the students have self-selected and they reached out to me, they're generally really high quality. So I'm able to make use of it, but but it's still a huge task. So we're well on our way, but um, it requires a good deal of, of uh, mentoring on my part. So mm-hmm. um, it's, a, it's definitely a fun learning experience, but they're super students. So I'm really blessed to, to have them. Um, it's amazing what Twitter can do in that respect, too, in terms of students who see your profile or come across your faculty bio somewhere and reach out. Um, and I have a unique process bringing people on board if they if they reach out. And one of the things I say is, you know, thank you for reaching out. I'm glad you looked at my CV and publications, which they typically already have done. But before they join or before I welcome them under my sort of mentorship, I have them clearly take a look at my Twitter feed to make sure they want to join. So hmm. it's it's a unique experience, but we're in a, a crazy time right now, as you well have chronicled within academia. And um, it's one way that, that I've kind of been able to leverage it on, on my behalf and, and to make use of students who who really want to do good work and, and, you know, get at the truth. So mm, mm. how did you get into this domain, yes. developmental and evolutionary psychopathology? Yeah. So I have an interesting sort of trajectory. You know, I went to undergrad sort of more or less as an athlete. Um, I was a hockey player all my life and still, still am in, in, in certain, certain times when I am able to get to the rink. But I was interested in sort of criminal criminal behavior more broadly. I was in undergrad right around the Silence of the Lambs sort of pinnacle time and profiling and all that. And I got into criminal justice, but I found it really, I guess the best way is to put it unsatisfying in terms of my intellectual sort of uh, interests in terms of, you know, really drilling down to understand why certain people engage in certain behaviors or, or why people and you know grow up and fare better or fare worse depending on you know how their life has been so then i took a double major in psychology um uh an undergrad mentor at the time sort of pointed me to attachment theory which you know i just naturally grasped and read and and continued to read and then after after undergrad, I did a terminal master's in forensic psych in a program in Vermont that's no longer there. And then I did a little bit of clinical work uh, working with residential youth 
And during that whole time, I was continuing to read the academic literature and really still set on on doing a PhD. And finally, um, you know, I took some time prep for the GREs and then and then got into a few schools and, and went to the University of Miami for my PhD in developmental. And su- subsequent to that, I've been in sub, you know, several postdocs and lived in different places and um, all the while continuing to sort of take in my interests and, and meet people in academia, colleagues at conferences and so forth. And then I would say within the last two to three years, it's been such a wild, wild west territory in academia that um, a lot of what I experienced as a graduate student you know, reflecting back, I see now kind of it's a little more understandable how we got to where we are in academia. But, um, you know, all the while, somebody like me who was more interested in evolutionary psych and larger, more population based questions of human development, um, you know, I've, I've landed with several colleagues on several projects and so it's been an enriching time but it's also been sort of a bewildering one because it's definitely a much different environment than it was when i was doing my phd back in 2007 um so i'm sure there's an answer to this question i don't know if you're willing to provide it but is there are there tools or is there a developmental and or evolutionary psychopathology lens that we can apply to the sea change within academia are you tempted at all to see that and what are some of the things that we can use there to fruitfully understand that change and i guess we should probably kind of sketch what what that change is from your point of view yeah i I certainly have um reflected on this, uh, particularly since when I was in graduate school back in 2007, you know, things were still kind of settled at that point. And even though developmental psych and more generally the social sciences, uh, researchers who study emotion, um, feeling states, that, that tends to attract, you know, a particular social and personality style that's a little bit more um, if you think of sort of the more broad-band psychometric dimensions of masculinity and femininity, even though there's some dispute psychometrically about them, it fits the profile well that the social sciences generally track with more feminine characteristics, emotion, um, empathy, caring, that sort of thing, which makes good sense when you're speaking of developmental psych, which we study babies. Uh, attachment was really all about infants and babies not that males couldn't do that but generally speaking it tracks female and subsequent to the sea change that we've experienced back i guess i really started feeling it coming on interestingly enough back pre-trump even when i was following the news and you could just feel it building within academia too and i've written a little bit about this on my first substack post i really think it has a lot to do with the personality and behavioral traits that track with these domains, not just within developmental psych, but in the social sciences more broadly. And that, that has incredibly begun to seep into even the harder biological and mathematical sciences, which is amazing to see. Um, And certainly there's been social events that have uh, amplified 
tendencies that were already existing in, in those disciplines. Certainly, we all know in academia, subsequent to the to the George Floyd um, murder um, and, and death, however you want to frame, frame what occurred, um, that really caused a sea change in, in ideologies within within academia and everything became completely um, all about empathy and caring and, and sort of more or less, I would say, untethered from, you know, objectivity and looking at things without emotion uh, to really get at the truth, whatever that might be, um, whatever that might be in terms of what you're investigating or exploring. In my case, you know, it might have been, you know, how how environmental influences impact child development. Um, certainly, we've seen a sea change in how folks look at, you know, gender dysphoria and and, and sexual uh, behaviors in terms of how one feels within their biological sex. So it's really completely permeated so many different aspects. And, you know, I study psychopathology, so... Um, you know, coming back to your original question, what factors could explain the sea change that we're experiencing? I really do think it has to do with the particular characteristics, especially in the social sciences, that um, individuals who go into those disciplines typically bring with them. Um, and they, they tend to be more um, characteristics associated with femininity or feeling states, less systemizers, less masculinity traits and that's not a value judgment it just is and that has when you scale that um to a you know to an academic ecosystem that is now much more predominantly female than it is male and that's been chronicled by several um you know journalists and so forth that has consequences for the types of science that gets done uh, the types of rigor that is applied. Um, and so that's kind of more or less how I see this. Um, you know, obviously this, I'm, te I'm speaking in the aggregate, um, but at the same time, um, I think you have to look at, at scale to really understand the influences that we're experiencing as opposed to, sure, there could be, um, you know, there's, there's still males within these disciplines that are, that are doing good work, very objective, rigorous work, but in general, there's a disproportionate influence, um, and, and that's having really downstream effects on on what we're seeing coming out of the you know the academy, mm -hmm. not just with respect to, to research, but also you know as we've seen as you've experienced some of the illiberal demonstrations, what can or cannot be said, what can or cannot be investigated in terms of research, so. It's widespread and it's it's um, it's having unfortunate consequences, in, in my opinion, for the quality of science that gets done, the quality of an intellectual investigation. The the previous the academy, academy let me dial back. Sorry, I'm hearing myself and OK, the previous academy, if we dial things back. 40, 50 years was predominantly male and historically has been predominantly male. And due to that, I'm sure that there were certain 
things that were overlooked and certain patterns of behavior with which gave rise to probably oversight or undersight with regards to certain issues or topics or investigations um, or even questions that are asked might be uh, not naturally asked by men as opposed to asked by women. So if we're seeing some of the imbalances in a system that is now switching from a male-dominated to a female-dominated uh, in aggregate um, makeup, how do you perceive or what do you think are the balancing, will there be a balancing out of this overswing with regards to this kind of more female-oriented, in a psychometric sense, institution kind of figuring out its way now that it, it hasn't had uh, years and centuries of uh, trial and error to figure out, you know, how to deal with uh, these uh, qualities, these psychometric qualities in aggregate. And also, if you look at least Western society, um, I'm sure that you could uh, non-value uh, non statemently say that We've lived basically in a patriarchy or a male-dominated knowledge production society. And so now having a female-dominated knowledge production uh, institution, um, it might be novel. And so there, it just needs time to develop and to refine itself and to correct uh, the overcorrections that might be making. Do, do you see kind of my point? And uh, will there be, do we need to, concentrate more on balancing the masculine and the feminine? Or do you think that the feminine will go through some sort of trial and error to balance itself out if these institutions forevermore for the next century or decades become mostly female-led? Yeah, that's a great question. One that I'm, I'm more or less grappling with myself. Um, you know, obviously you would tend to, you know, you need a balance of both, not just in terms of the academy, but in terms of societal functioning. Um, the problem is what's happening now is we have an asymmetry, as I just mentioned, within the you know educational and cultural institutions in the West, and that then you know comes downstream to politics, and you have policy that then is you know policy and journalism that reflects that, and that becomes problematic when things are untethered from you know in the aggregate from objective reality, and, and you see this in journalism a lot. But in our politics, too. And so my hope is that it's a natural reset at some point um, because you can't go on. You can't continue in sort of a completely emotion-based way of understanding nature, not just biological nature, but human nature and psychological nature. Otherwise, you, you know, you just you have no real anchor um, and I think, you know, historically you pointed out that, you know, the academic institutions were more masculine based and more patriarchal. And I think th there's a natural reason for some of that men gravitate towards, you know, fields in STEM that, that track with engineering and analytical numeracy and and rigor a little bit more just just by virtue of their biological makeup in the aggregate of course some some women do um but we've kind of reversed that now and even in the the harder biological and mathematical sciences you're seeing some of the 
the sea change filter in in terms of uh, what we were just talking about. So I, I guess my hope, and I really can't give you a, a concrete answer of how this corrects or rectifies itself, but you know, you hope it just rebalances out because otherwise, I'm not quite sure what what would happen. I mean, I've certainly one intellectual whose work I've read at you know Martin Gurry, who who wrote Revolt of the Public. Although he wasn't talking specifically about academia, he was talking about institutions and cultural and educational institutions. And we sort of, you know, one of the points he makes is that if we continue to fly into this sort of identity-based, more emotionally driven way of understanding ourselves in the world, we fly into this subjectivized existence and there's no real unitary organizing function anymore um everybody you know the the sort of what we before took for granted as expert knowledge about the world and and our place in it no longer has its legitimacy if we continue down this path so you know, my hope is that it rebalances. And as I've kind of navigated my own work amidst sort of, I guess I, you know, I exist within the institutions now, but I'm also sort of more, you know, as many academics now are traversing sort of this open, wild plane of sort of pseudo Twitter, Substack investigation or podcasts like this one where, where, Research is getting done in many different ways. Questions are being asked. And so I think, you know, even in journalism, for example, you know, Glenn Greenwald has talked about how, you know, many journalists are just doing their own thing now. And I think that might be one rectifying way what you're seeing with journalism might play out in academia more broadly, where researchers just, you know, create their own spaces. And we've seen that recently with these sort of the University of Austin-led uh, endeavor, which I think is, you know, is is a really good barometer of where we are. Um, people are now creating their own institutions, and we're seeing sort of this, um, <clears throat> this what's been called a great sorting in academia, and I can even see it too with what I mentioned, you know, with my mentees earlier. Folks are seeking out people whose work they value and leaving the institutions behind. Um, so, it, you know, what's going to happen, I think, is some sort of resorting. But what that leaves in its wake, I'm not quite sure what that means for existing institutions. Um, at some point, they're either going to have to rebalance or they're going to just be completely in a way, replaced by new institutions, I guess, in in the nature of time. There is a a notion, well, there's IQ, and then there's this notion of EQ. And I don't know to what extent, I know EQ is argued, I don't know to what extent, you probably could weigh in on that, the validity of that. But if you think of IQ as something, and EQ as something, and just say that people have emotional intelligence, or maybe even emotional social intelligence, and then people have 
I guess, uh, some sort of computational-esque intelligence. And then if you say that most analytic reasoning or rationality, the classic rationality is based or is aimed towards um, IQ, is there a sort of, um, what, what would be a problem-solving toolkit like rationality or analytic argument for the emotional. So I'm trying to ask about if institutions do go emotional, what is their tool that they settle disputes and make decisions with if logic and rationality are uh, not just um, dethroned of their primacy, but undermined in their legitimacy by the emotional set? Do you, do you have any ideas on that? How reasoning through problems would happen in a emotionally based institution or, or group context? That's a, you know, that's a difficult question. Typically in IQ work, we talk about G or general intelligence, which psychometrically just refers to the fact that, you know, there's multiple types of intelligence subtests that, ta that tap various aspects of intelligence, quantitative numeracy, and then there's, of course, verbal intelligence, which kind of gets at a little bit of what you're discoursing about emotional intelligence, and that loads, you know, onto a higher level construct, which is referred to as general intelligence, which typically it's G that tracks with the analytical rigor and, and, and more broadly is associated with competence across all different domains. In terms of, you know, how do institutions rebalance in settled disputes where where you have more of the, the emotional intelligence quotient? You know, I think the hope would be that you have a, a, a balance of types in, in these institutions that can, can synthesize both. Um, at the end of the day, you know, obviously, much like in law, you know, you, you have to set aside emotion and making judgments about objective truth. And that's, you know, that can be a difficult task to do, uh, as we've seen recently, in some of the court cases, even in, in the US. Um, so ultimately, I think, what that would depend upon is, is that these institutions allow for heterogeneity in, in the types of individuals that come in. And part of the problem with that is that in some some of these institute, you know, some of these fields, men generally or more masculine tendencies, whether they're within males or females. They, you know, they don't track with those disciplines as much. I mean, I, when I reflect back onto developmental psych, for even, you know, for example, when I was doing my PhD, I just kind of was, I was the only male who was really interested in studying infants and babies in the context of attachment theory. Um, and I was surrounded by, you know, all of my cohort members were, you know, clinical or developmental students who were female, but I just didn't recognize the consequences of that sort of more 
broadly speaking, for a larger social science discipline um, beyond developmental psych. And when I was doing the, the graduate work at the time, I just, you know, I really didn't understand how that might, in the aggregate, create a situation that is not necessarily um, the most balanced with respect to understanding human development or, or population behavior at scale. Um, so, you know, if, if our educational bodies are going to issue information that has public consequence or societal consequence, uh, whether that's coming from the social sciences or the mathematical disciplines or other disciplines that track more masculine in nature, engineering and STEM, we, we have to be honest about, first of all, we have to have an honest discussion about natural biological tendencies and tracking with those fields. And we cannot allow ourselves to have um, incidents like what we had with James Damore, where he was run out of town for just stating the obvious. So, Speaking of attachment theory, why was that so, why did you get attached to that? What was so uh, fascinating uh, for you about that? Well, I kind of was, when I was going through undergrad and, and reading, you know, I was always interested in what, what kind of life environment or circumstances uh, create a situation where individuals end up on a course of behavior, in, in, you know, on their life path that doesn't end up well. You know, they become criminal or they're down and out. Um, and so I was more of an environmentalist in the sense of at least my initial reading and thinking that, you know, how how the environment impacts us will have an influence on how we develop. And so when one of the um, undergraduate mentors that I had introduced me to attachment theory, I just naturally gravitated to it and began reading voluminously in, in the literature and of course the theory and, and everything else. And because of my natural inclinations, I continued to read and continued to sort of want to do research in that area. And interestingly enough, attachment theory, you know, at its core is, is really readily misunderstood in the sort of the public lay literature is this Freudian sort of theory that your mother influences everything and, and what have you. But in fact, attachment theory as articulated originally by, by, its founder, John Bowlby, and, and his colleagues is more evolutionary based. Hmm. So the idea is that attachment is a protective function. And so there's a lot of evolutionary um, lines of work that go into it. And most aren't really familiar with that fact. So it's a little bit more grounded, even though it's an environmentalist theory, it's a little bit more grounded in evolution than others may suspect who associate attachment with Freud or some of the more wild, you know, theories. Win Winnicott, is that his name? Uh, Winnicott was an object relations theorist. He was sort of, I guess if you, if you were thinking of Winnicott, you would kind of put him in between Freud and Bowlby. He was, you know, he was object relations 
So not necessarily maybe as grounded in science and evolutionary biology as Bowlby was, but he certainly brought ideas to the table and sort of a clinical view of the environment, what he called, you know, the holding environment or the good enough environment that that had appeal that made sense. And I think, you know, could 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 be grappled with by the public rather than more really scientific um, nuanced constructs that had to do with evolutionary biology or, you know, working models and so forth. So Winnicott is, is really famous for a lot of his rich clinical descriptions of the types of environments that, that create optimal scenarios for positive development or, um, you know, not so optimal scenarios for unhealthy psychological and emotional development. So when you speak about environmentalism or being an environmentalist, is that along the, I don't know if this is going to be triggering to you, I know this is a fraught term, but nature-nurture thing going on? And how does that relate to the blank slate versus not blank slate argument or discussion? Well, sure. And I think nature-nurture is just, um, it's just, it's, you know, the analogy would be hereditarianism, environmentalism in IQ work, for example. And so I think generally most people would agree that it's not simply, and, and this might be stated in the obvious, it's not, you know, there's genetic determinism is, is the extreme on one end, and then the blank slate would be the extreme on the other. And this gets really at the heart of not just science, but also ideologies in terms of political ideologies and so forth. And, you know, for me, the interesting part about it is, is, you know, both contribute, but one, I think much more so than the other. And I, you know, I came of age as an attachment partisan, somebody who still believes that the environment has, has a, not you know a non-negligible role in how we end up but the reality of it is is that genetics biological aspects of who we are i think are the much more significant role in how we end up and you know many will say well that's a slippery slope to determinism and and you know there's maybe an argument there but the reality of it is, is that how we end up has a lot more to do with, I think, you know, our inborn genes than, than how we were raised or the environment that we grew up in. Um, that's not to say that the environment that we grow up in doesn't have any influence or even for each individual considered uniquely maybe a very important influence. But by and large, my work has shown that you know, even when we take large data sets and look at attachment and, you know, compare it to other predictors that are more biologically oriented or that might be proxies for genetics, we see that the predictive influence of the biological variables or the genetic variables are much stronger uh, in effect. And so that's one of the interesting aspects of my work, even though I'm still an, an attachment partisan, I see great value in Winnicott. I see great value in Bowlby. My 
realization has changed that it's much more, you know, biological in how we, in terms of how we end up than it is environmental. So that's sort of one change that I've experienced in my own work over time. And I'm grateful to, one of the things that's important to point out is I'm grateful to other advisors that I've worked with who were more or less attachment partisans who asked, who, who allowed you to ask those questions, you know, pitting attachment theory against other theories that might be more biologically oriented, for example. Um, and so, you know, you have a lot of social science research, particularly in today's world, where it's just, you just have environmental predictors. Nobody considers the genetic or biological component. And so when you become untethered to any biological explanation, you're not in a position to really evaluate the work appropriately. Maybe some people are biologically determined to be environmentalists. Yeah, there's certainly a penchant for that. And I think I think we talked a little bit about that in the in the opening there a little bit about what is creating the sea change. And so environmentalists who, you know, have a penchant maybe to see the world that way might have some of the same personality and behavioral traits that contribute to, to them going into some of these fields that really want to see the world this way and, and are creating a world that is totally socially blank slate determined. And that's why we have all the inequities that we do or the disparities that we do. So they don't, they don't want to think or feel or consider the possibility that inequities might just simply be a result of, of who we are rather than created by the environments that we're, we're reared in or the experiences that we, that we have. If they, if the inequities are the result of the environment in which we are uh, result more of the biology than the environment, is it still, it's still an open question or that doesn't put aside the question that maintaining or seeking a certain environment uh, will be better for society at large. Let's just say over the course of ages, if you have different groups that perform differently in different tasks and those different tasks have different values to the society and so people are rewarded differently and then over time that shuffles those groups into uh, different uh, economic statuses or different class statuses. And I'm not talking race, I'm just talking, you know, let's just say we're, we're just talking about Ireland over the course of 500 years between, uh, you know, 400 to, you know, 900 um, BCE or CE. That doesn't mean that the people who end up on top over time, it's not smarter for them to actually make sure that the environment is, is not so disparate for the people who don't have uh, the best outcomes over time so that those people don't become so discontent that their environment forces them into some sort of uh, societally... Um, upsetting uh, reaction to the disparity between their have-notness and the haves, right? There's no moral. Um, there's no moral reason for us to ignore the environment and to not try to create a more perfect union. Let's say, among these different groups that have different outcomes. 
Well, and I, and I think that's the heart of a lot of the political questions that we're, we're undergoing at, at the moment. And, and I think there's a recent book, um, you know, The Genetic Lottery by Paige Harden, which which discusses a lot of this, these questions. Um, and that's been, you know, there's been several Twitter threads and reviews of her book. And, and um, I think there's a lot of good questions and discourse that has been asked about some of these questions of social inequity and you know, do we create, you know, at the one extreme is creating this utopia where everybody achieves the same at the end and everybody has equal amounts or, you know, at the other extreme where you just have more or less, you know, a eugenic, crazy, crazy Hitlerian world. And so, you know, obviously the ideal society is one that over time is going to find a way to you know, create less inequity as much as possible. But at the same time, you can't deny the fact that inequity is going to arise out of just the reality of who we are based on our, you know, our attributes, our abilities. And so I think that's really at the heart of, of really governance and political discourse is finding common ground to answer those questions. Um, but it requires a deep understanding of, of science. And so that's part of the issue, right? So for trying to create an optimal multicultural society in the West, we have to really understand the forces across groups that are, are impacted, you know, are involved in, in creating that. And, and if we completely go blank slateism, you ignore biological reality and you create a socially engineered world that, that doesn't work in the end. It just, it it just can't because when you scale population genetics, there's forces there that, that you can't, you, you can't socially engineer them differently. You certainly can create programs and you can create ways in which you, you try to lift groups up or correct imbalances, um, but you can't delete, for example, the fact that certain, and let's just use biological sex as one variable, certain sexes, you know, certain sexes will track more STEM than others. And so you can't force an artificial ratio on that that is incongruent with the way biology works and to not just biology, but also personal liberty and personal preference too. I mean, that it gets really authoritarian. If you demand 51% across the board of female representation everywhere, you're going to have a lot of miserable women and then a lot of miserable men too, just based on purely based on what they're paying their attention to with their energies, their life energies. Yeah. And and, and I, I think, you know, your point is well taken. We see that now. You, you create an artificial world in which you want to have equal representation that is incongruent with people's and individuals' natural preferences. No one is happy. Um, or, or many aren't. And quality suffers as a result. Uh, personal happiness suffers as a result. And we end up with institutions that that are not reflective of the natural world. Um, and 
to some degree, that's that's exactly where we are right now, um, and part of the problem with what's going on. Whether that's you know STEM was just one example, but um, there's plenty of others that that fall into this rubric. Uh, Not to get too political, and I don't mean I don't mean to bring this up to be political. It's just part of a theme of what I'm seeing coming from our policymakers in the United States. The Biden administration or whoever it is that helps Biden with his tweets, and it might be Biden that writes them. It might not be, though. He said something to the effect that um, thousands of women or millions of women or some large portion of women have been uh, forced out of the workforce during this pandemic to take care of their children and their their elderly dependents. And we are going to fund um, socialized daycare and elderly care so women can get back to work. And that tracks with uh, another proposition that I've seen floated about specifically within feminist or women's circles about the disparity with which uh, men are being paid for what they want to do and what women are paid for what women want to do, which basically sorts out that women do uh, natal care and women work with, uh, they work in the home, they work with care, and that's not remunerated as much as a man who wants to build a business and stuff. And so it's seen as unfair if you look at it purely as everybody is a market commodity or we're all laborers and we should all be equally uh, paid back for what we put into society at large. It's just, it's interesting question. I wonder if you have any thoughts on um, reducing everything to a monetary value and how that would track with attachment and child raising specifically. And do we really undervalue women's contribution to society because we don't pay them or are they paid some other way? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. It's actually one Bowlby himself addressed even prior to his, his death and that we do undervalue sort of the role that child rearing has for a society. And I can't remember offhand the exact quote that Bowlby made, but basically he said to the degree that, you know, um, a society doesn't contribute to or, or value the, the sort of natal role of, of child rearing at, to the same degree that it does the sort of money-laden resource acquisition, uh, you know, fields as men, then we're going to have problems. And so finding ways to really value and appreciate the contribution of child rearing and what that means largely, you know, you know, in the average, it's, it's more, you know, female dominated than, than men, but even with males, valuing the raising of children is, is a huge thing that has been undervalued in a highly capitalistic society. And so when that happens, you know, you, you create an environment in which a role is disparaged and the consequences are, you know, they can be drastic in terms of, uh, of children growing up in homes that, you, you know, are less than ideal and, and more so, you know, and I've, you know, this is just anecdotal, but I've, you know, I've, I've encountered many 
many, many younger students, especially women. And, and I think there's some, and I'm trying to think about how to describe what I've seen. It's just, I think there's some hesitation on their part because society and, and the culture is saying you need to be someone other than your instincts may be telling you or value those traits more than what your instincts may be telling you. And they feel some sort of tension there and navigating that tension between we can, you know, females can do anything just as well as males can do versus, you know, uh, uh, being within their instinctual feelings in a way that is, uh, adaptive for them and, and makes them feel comfortable is is a a minefield to traverse for for them and and to some degree you know the, the same pressure isn't on males because they're they're you know they're they're valued in a way that's different so sort of that acquisition based um, money based you know they don't feel that tension but I think that's different for for some for for females because if if what you feel instinctively is is undervalued or you're seen as a sellout because you didn't go into some sort of high tech CEO job and you wanted to stay home, that can be, you know, I don't know because I've never experienced it, but I would I would imagine that that feeling is not a good one to have where you do what you want to do, but yet you're seen as sort of a sellout to to, you know, maybe a larger more radical feminist stance. Yeah, one of the waves of feminism concocted a certain sort of expectation which seemed kind of anti-female on a biological level, just strictly on a biological level where it started to see men's role in, in men's role in society as the default that everybody should uh, be working toward, and that if women aren't represented in the workforce or in the boardroom, that's because purely, well, one, it's because women aren't allowed there, or some sort of patriarchal force is going on there. And so there's an expectation, rather than lifting up and fighting for uh, recognition and uh, the valuing of the natural uh, kind of more or less baby making uh, instincts and, and baby raising instincts and child rearing instincts of women, that was put on the back burner because the emphasis was put on the outside world. So rather than you know, changing our attitude towards uh, the home and figuring out ways to, to value that and to bring that sort of labor and that sort of work up into the modern kind of consciousness as something that's very valued. Um, that was seen as, it seems like it was seen as traditional or a sellout. So now you have a uh, generation of women who grew up in a society that looks at and values typically male-oriented uh, roles as uh, dominant and as the way in which you prove your value to society. Um, so I, I can see how it, that's difficult for women. And so the question would be, how do we balance out the, again, liberty and the nuances of everybody is not a representative of their group? Of course, you're we can study groups and say that by and large, females are going to go in this direction, males going to go in this direction. Um, but that doesn't mean that any given individual can't do whatever they want and, and making that like a standard value. You can really do whatever you want, but also over 
time, like these these things that are seen as traditional and that were cast as somehow lesser than, um, such as being a mother and uh, you know managing a household, we if we go back and figure out how to value those things and balance that out that might help women to do that and also to have a career at the same time or to order their life in such a way that matches up with their natural biology of being fertile in their 20s and doing that work and then still being fully capable adults when they're 40 or you know in their 30s going back to school and then doing a lot of work in that portion of life with a lot more wisdom that they gained through that and then we also have children um, by and large. Yeah, and I think well, I think that's a key issue that that we need to you know think about as as a society, as experts in the field, as politicians, as as others who are contributing to the way society runs. But I think one other thing too, and, and you you make a good point in this, is that you know there's averages that speak to how the world works more or less, and then of course everybody can vary around that mean. So you you have many women who just straight up want to go into male-dominated fields. And I think part of the reason historically that we've had sort of this overcorrection is that, you know, certainly discrimination did exist. And so one of the things that, that is actually, I think, a benefit of of rebalancing ourselves is that we're in a world now where there's no way to really parse which actual discrimination versus what isn't because everything is racist or everything is sexist nowadays. So if you go back into a a world where we allow natural tendencies to emerge and are valued equally, it makes it easier to identify for in this case, as we're talking, you know, the the over aggressive male who discriminates or the sort of patriarchal department that doesn't allow even a well-qualified women to come into it because it becomes so obvious then that it is discrimination. And so I think that's one upshot is that, you know, if we get back to where we allow these natural tendencies to emerge and they're valued and we understand that, look, there's never going to be equal representation of males and females in STEM fields or at least, you know, 50-50, we can work towards a much more equitable and, you know, non-discriminatory STEM field where the the, the women who truly want to go into that and who are qualified to go into that are not in any way discriminated against by males who might just, you know, you know, one off and say that we don't, ha- you know, we don't want to have any women in this field or, or, or vice versa. And, and the same could be, you know, although it's a less extreme example, the same could be said of men who want to go into child rearing or men who want to go into, you know, uh, caring fields. They're going to probably take some heat from other males, but a- allowing them to just not do, you know, engage in their natural inclinations without fear of reprise or reprisal or or just flat out discrimination. It's much more obvious in the case of, of STEM, which we're talking about, because that's been in the news and that's sort of one that's routinely discussed. But the ability to really parse out what's true discrimination versus what's actual just natural inclination is, is really a crucial thing that 
we need to get back to doing. Otherwise, nobody knows really what's going on. I also, you're making me think that if we can get to a place where we actually are honest about the differences between the sexes, uh, generally speaking, we could advance and build upon that to such a degree that women within STEM will be seen as valuable for their unique contributions that they can make. And I remember speaking with Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying at some point a few years ago about evolutionary biology or within biology itself that there were certain questions that men never thought to ask about different creatures or different behavioral patterns that a woman, you know, it, it took women getting into the field to start to explore and to ask these questions. And it could be the case that within the, um, the humanities and these other female-dominated fields such as caring, there is a contribution that's unique to males. Speaking of somebody who worked in preschool for uh, a decade and a half, and I was usually the only male around, I... You know, I established relationships and, and I figured out that there was something unique for me to give to this work, uh, kind of a, a, a vuncular uncle-like role. And I had to figure out how to change my behavior to be acceptable to the women around me, but also show my value as something that was different and unique and gave another angle and gave, much, uh, gave a whole nother field of exploration and discovery for the children and development for the children with regards to just my basic natural male characteristics. Um, so if we, if we can get to a place where we truly value each other and truly understand without trying to to discriminate in a negative sense, we can actually see that there's a lot of value and we can invite women into more male-dominated fields and invite men into more uh, female-dominated fields. And everybody is enriched by that. Yeah, 100%. And, 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 you know, know, just as you were talking there, it made me think about attachment theory. So, you know, attachment theory was, was generated, written by John Bowlby. He was a male, but the history of the field was enriched tremendously and really allowed it to proceed as a research tradition because of women. So Mary Ainsworth, who was Bowlby's collaborator, designed the gold standard procedure for observing infants who separate and reunite with their caregivers that allows us to really understand and classify infant attachment. Could you it, expound on that? I'm really interested in hearing this experiment. So the strain situation procedure is the gold standard developmental psychology procedure to evaluate infant attachment. And basically what happens is you have a sort of a laboratory observation room where you have a series of episodes and the infant will leave or the, the parent will leave the room. The infant is then, you know, in a room with which typically a stranger who is a, you know, graduate student or or what have you. And there's a sequence of episodes and we observe trained coders observe how the infant responds to the comings and goings of the caregiver. Typically it's mother, but, but not, not always. There's, there's many cases of strange situations that I've coded where the father's been involved, but that, that entire paradigm was the result of Mary Ainsworth, who who was female and who did her work initially in Uganda. And so 
that is an example right there of, of sort of a, you know, but I don't think Bowie himself would have ever discovered or created a strange situation. That, that was something that a creative mind had to, had to, it was something that was more likely to come from a creative mind. And then you look at the gold standard developmental measure of adult attachment, which is called the adult attachment interview. That was created by um, Mary Maine, who was a graduate student of Mary Ainsworth. And she created this way of, you know, you interview a, an adult about their early experiences. And then there's a detailed way of, of reading the transcript of that interview and how they talk about their early life that we can then code for patterns of discourse that might tell us more about how that person values attachment or, you know, how that person developed across their lifespan. And that, that method which, as with any psychometric tool, an interview-based measure, it, it has its you know advocates and it has some who think it's it's bunk, but it's it's a good measure. I'm, I'm trained in it as well, and that was created by a female who had a creative mind that, that could understand patterns of linguistic discourse, and so the field of attachment is one in which you see that synthesis of if we allow the world to just be okay with biological differences and you create an, an environment where they can mesh without that tension of having it to be one way or the other, you have this really enriched discipline. And that's not to say that th there's critics of attachment theory. There's plenty of that. I mean, you see that with really any theory, of course, and, and even myself, as I mentioned, I, I, I wasn't attachment partisan, but I can see weaknesses in these measures too. But even within the male-dominated field, right, developmental psych typically was all female or largely female. But the role of men in child rearing is so crucial in terms of setting structure and guidance. And you know, you've seen, you know, even there was a there was a, a video that went viral some time ago where where men had to come into a, a situation, I believe it was in Tennessee or, or one of the Midwestern states where there was some ruckus and men had to come in and really get the the youth to really have some structure to, to regain control of the situation. And men have a very important, huge role to play in child rearing. And, and so to the extent that, you know, historically that's been sort of neglected or undervalued in a world where we understand that there's differences in what the sexes bring to the table in terms of their interests, their proclivities, and what evolution has hardwired them to do. If we don't deny that, we create an environment where those deviations from the mean are, are more allowable and nobody really bats an eye about them. And you create an environment where mm -hmm. over time there is a natural evolution process that isn't artificial, that, that creates that environment that, that is, I think, beneficial for not just families in this case, but society, which is really one large big family. Mm -hmm. um, 
with regard to attachment theory or just attachment over the course of the life, is it typical that we have strong attachments when we're infants? Of course it's typical, but do adults also form attachments or do adults still kind of replicate that primary caregiver thing in their life, either with an ego of their self, they, they build themselves as their attachment or with regards to with regard to how monogamy basically shakes out or best friends kind of shake out. Has there been any exploration of how attachment develops over time in our lives? Yeah, there, there's a, there's a ton of research that, that is, you know, that exists on that. And the, the basic idea is, you know, in, in attachment is that sort of the romantic attachment is sort of an extension of attachment that, you know, develops early in life between the infant and the caregiver. Um, you know, of course, that's not a, a one-to-one relationship and attachment relationships typically are what's considered, you know, they, they follow what's considered lawful continuity. So as long as your environment is, you know, the same, you're, you're not going to change in terms of your attachment patterns. If you're receiving the same input environmentally, there's no reason to a change, you know, how you're adapting or how you're relating to others. Are you speaking about basically breastfeeding, for example, like you'll keep on sucking at the, your mom until she cuts you off. Is that what you're talking no, about? No. So that, that's the more Freudian, I think, misstep there. So in terms of attachment, just in terms of how does the infant perceive the caregiver to be available in times of need when there's there's danger or safety that needs to be met it has nothing to do with sort of the freudian breastfeeding implications but to the extent that the environment is stable and the infant can turn to a reliable caregiving figure uh when there's danger in the environment that might impact its safety or in 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 strict evolutionary terms of survival of the infant, then that, that sort of prototype of the world is going to be carried forward you know, into other relationships. So if you can really, if you develop an early working model that the caregiver is dependable in times of stress, then you're going to be able to depend and uh, seek dependence from other attachment figures in your life. Um, one of them being potentially a romantic partner. And so the idea is there's some continuity there in terms of how one relates to others. But if, for example, there's, there's change in the attachment environment growing up and you, you know, you go from uh, a situation in which your caregiver was dependable to one in which they no longer are, that's where you create sort of the discontinuity in terms of how you might relate to others. But of course, in all of this, you know, we're not we're not talking about genetic proclivities either. So it's not just attachment, but but individuals have unique biological predispositions to be more shy, more withdrawn. And so you have to contribute, you know, you have to consider the entire portrait to really understand how we relate later on down the road. Um and so there's there's a ton of work that we could we could get into future discussions about that they get into unpacking all of this, but um, the the idea is that the prototype that is established in your early relationships in terms of how readily do you do you believe someone is going to be there for you in times of of 
life-threatening crises or other significant social stressors, then you're going to carry that forward into your future relationships. It's, I've noted this, and I know I'm not the only one who's noted this, but just studying the Evergreen State College as deeply as I have and seeing, uh, you know, the structures and the patterns of behavior at work and what they produced, but also just how the administration and the professors treated the students. It's almost like they claimed the primary caregiver role. And you see that with the creation of safe spaces and uh, every time a national tragedy that would be upsetting to specifically the Democrats occurred, the administration would make these proclamations that they're there for the students. And, and they, a lot of the behavior that I saw specifically in that outburst, which reminded me a whole hell of a lot about, uh, of toddlers acting up, uh, the way that the students acted, they were acting that way as a toddler would act to their parent or to their disciplinary or their, their caregiver. Could it be the case that the institution that's spinning, um, psychometrically kind of feminine is recreating kind of a mother child relationship? And if that is, if that could be the case insofar as that is a viable model is there any way that we could uh, counter that or critique it in a way that would make it less prone to causing students who are not resilient or who throw tantrums or who aren't actually prepared for the world because they're coddled throughout all of their uh, you know, schooling, something like that? I don't know if that's viable. I know that's kind of a political question, but what are your thoughts? Well, I think the more I've reflected, I never was really into politics, even in graduate school, but because of what's happened in the sea change in academia, it's become a, a central interest of mine in the last, say, 10 years, because you can't separate politics from everything that's going on. And I think there is some some appeal to a latent sort of more abstract idea that this sort of communal collectivist mother state is characteristic of the more radical fringes of the left. And it's sort of this idea of helicopter parenting and total safe spaces and no exposure to stressors that allow us to be inoculated to life's travails. Um, And the only way to rectification of that is to have a, have institutions where there's an equal balance of the forces and because they're so homogenized now i'm not sure if you you know because of the homogeneity that exists the ideological homogeneity that exists in much of the academic institutions when you have that environment it almost becomes impossible to dilute it because when you're you know an ideological homogeneity body you don't want anyone to come in and mess up that sort of complete adherence to one way of being and so that's one of the difficulties that i see inherent in moving this forward is how do we dilute what is completely you know a substance that is only one substance um and, and I don't know 
how that's going to shake out other than to sort of end up in the sorting that we're seeing where you have new institutions that are created by default where they seek out uh, a mixture of views and individuals who think differently about different things. Let the market decide. Is that what you're saying? Is it an environmental yeah, solution? Yeah, and I, and, I, and, I, and I truly believe that's kind of what we're seeing now. I mean, you know, I work with a number of colleagues. Many of us have declined memberships in organizations because they're just getting so out of hand with the ideological groupthink that it's becoming completely a complete parody of any semblance of scientific rigor or scientific open investigation of topics. Um, and so the marketplace is going to ultimately be where this gets sorted out. And I don't mean just the marketplace in terms of monetary value, but I think, and what I've seen from some of the, the individuals that have sought me out to, to work under my guidance, there's just a hunger for understanding how the world works as sort of a natural in a natural way and that's going to play itself out over time the end of which i'm not quite sure how it's going to look but a lot of what we're seeing in sort of the quote-unquote metaverse right now is is that sorting itself out um and i think it's going to be crucial to whatever world you and I might end up living in, in, in 10 to 15, 20 years. Oh. Yeah. It casts a long shadow. If you look at how our society has been set up pre internet, the, uh, the elites were created in academia and then went on to be the elites. And if academia itself, which still, um, holds the reins of accreditation and therefore the, the rubber stamp of if you're an elite or not, if all of that is producing a certain level of group think, then you're going to, or a certain ideological uh, spin, you're going to see that replicated and embedded pretty deeply into every other institution. And I'm watching that progress through law, which is pretty scary. <laughs> uh, but you see that in media and you see that in policy and politics and so on. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the, the books that is most insightful on that exact issue is Martin, Gar Martin Gurry's Revolt of the Public. Uh, I can't recommend that to your viewers and, and yourself enough because it talks about just that. And I, I think when you have the legitimacy of the institutions crumble, you're in a bad spot because the public knows the institutions no longer are credible but yet the institutions still exist. And so what happens then? You fly into this, what Gurry refers to as a subjectivized existence where, you, you know, everybody, there's no national narrative, much less any scientific narrative around crucial issues about how the world works. And what happens when that happens, no one has really encountered before. Well, and so you can see it kind of in uh, 20th century history. There were certain experiments that were run more or less along those lines. 
Right. And I mean, he, he talks about, Gurry talks about the climate sort of crisis and how that's been politicized in his book. And that, you know, once people started looking at the actual data and, and, and rectifying that with what the institutions were saying, and it goes on from there. But uh, I, I find this one of the unique challenges of my time is that, you know, you're still you're still, quote unquote, in an institution. Yet the institutions have really lost much of their credibility. So you're also in this wild, wild west plains of the marketplace of ideas. And so you're kind of existing in these two spaces and you have to be good at existing in both spaces to some degree. And until one becomes dominant, you have to sort of go in between. And that's kind of what one of the reasons I wanted to come on your show was, you know, I'm still not entirely convinced that the institutions are totally degraded such that they're a lost cause, but yet it's getting closer and closer to that point. So you're hedging your bets with Benjamin Boyce? (laughs) Well, I want to try to reach, and, and this is something I'm trying to do more recently with my Substack. Is I want to try to reach the population to say, look, there's still people in institutions that are doing good work that mean well, that are not just ideologues running amok, and are trying to push back in a way that is principled and it is is good, but yet there's forces that, you know, are working against them in lockstep. And part of pushing back in academia is being quote unquote bullish about what you believe, being a little bit more disagreeable or outspoken or saying things that are not politically correct. And there's of course a fine line between telling the truth and just being completely disrespectful or you know, completely, utterly, you know, objectionable in what you say, but even somewhere now, between uh, James Damore and Alex Jones, that's where you're trying to like, you're trying to yeah, get the perfect or, middle. Exactly. exactly. Um, you know, like, and, and this is something that's a unique thing for me too, right? Because when I was an athlete, I was in locker rooms my entire life through college, right? So you can imagine, you know, when you think of the stereotypical, locker room mentality, you know, I, I existed within that. Right. And so then I go into academia where it's completely the opposite of that. And so it's been unique traversing those two territories because they're, they're so entirely different. And yet really where the population is, is somewhere in that middle ground between halfway in or, or, you know, half the day in the locker room, half the day in sort of the boardroom or the graduate coursework room where, you know, you can't say certain things. And so, again, we're, we're, we're again, we're talking more largely and abstractly about balancing the masculine and the feminine, um, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we're totally asymmetrical right now in the organizations and institutions that are responsible for governance that we're running into a huge problem huge problem yeah what is the purpose or the themes that you're exploring in your Substack? well uh, the one of the uh, you know i've just recently begun it so the first post that really really uh percolated within me was looking at this exact issue we're talking about so what 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 has given rise to this ideological 
homogeneity in academia, especially the social sciences, and what does this mean for you know how how societies develop? And I kind of used Wesley Yang's successor ideology as sort of a a um, a motif to to draw on in my first post, and then subsequent posts, I want to talk a little bit about more how these themes also relate to how people are experiencing the pandemic and sort of the anxiety and fear that's been driven by media and journalism. And so understanding some of these larger societal forces that have trickled down from from sort of this over time, this ideological homogeneity in these these sciences and disciplines. Um, something that also has very much interested in me is Catherine Liu's idea of the professional managerial class, which is the PMC, which is essentially what you end up with in these ideologically homogeneous academic institutions. Um so I recently read her stuff. And so kind of really sketching out as someone who does scientific work, who looks at individual differences, how that matters at scale. So I'm kind of, again, existing in two worlds, one in which I can understand individual differences around groups and understand some of the concerns of, of the left or even the radical left about falling and slipping into determinism. But on the other hand, as someone who probably, and I'm independent just for the record, I'm not really with any political party, but as someone who probably leans a little bit more right, you know, I can see where right now we're in a world where the radical left has just gone off the rails and yet they dominate media. They dominate our cultural and educational institutions. And this is creating a really unstable world, to be frank with you, an unstable West. And we, you know, we we talk about the instability all the time, and I, I don't think people really appreciate the precipice that we may be on. Could you be a little black pilly and describe this? Uh, what's over the edge? Well, I think what's over the edge is just what kind of Guri talks about flying into this balkanized, subjectivized existence where you have no, you lose any internal hierarchical structure to a nation and you become just basically balkanized states everywhere. Um, you know, people just go to one state to, to be with their group, basically just tribes marauding everywhere without any shared identity or meaning and you can't have a, a, a strong nation in that circumstance you end up in for at least a while basically just a subjectivized sort of balkanized existence and then in the end you have conflict um and that's not a, a good place to be Okay, that was the black pill. For the not-so-black pill, the red pill, um, as a hockey player, have you taken more teeth or lost more teeth? Well, in, in, in college, we have to play with a face shield, so I largely didn't have that issue. Um, I, I will say that subsequent to college hockey, um, 
you know, you play without a face shield if you so desire. But I've been fortunate. Um, I haven't lost any any teeth um, playing hockey. Uh, I've broken other bones and suffered other injuries. But um, my teeth, the issues that I have with them are, are non-hockey related, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so. but, but and you haven't taken anybody else's teeth in a in a moment of uh, hockey fury. No, I haven't, and, and um, I, I have gotten into some hockey melees for sure. But um, again, in college hockey, even even ten years ago, it was fairly fairly tame, and so not the the sort of stereotypical hockey goonery, which there is some truth to. It, it wasn't as much a problem in college hockey or collegiate hockey because you were you were certainly penalized for it, but. Um, that is to say, too, that I wasn't, you know, perhaps I just wasn't much of a goon to begin with. So um, I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate there. So aside all this work you're doing with your brain, I guess that that's your main uh, outlet for, for your uh, your wild masculine energies is, is the hockey? Yeah, and, 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 and I like to train. I, I was always a gym, a gym person, and I feel that refreshes me, especially now where everything is, is – remote and you're on the computer all the time i get up i have a weighted jump rope i go to the gym i have push-up blocks and so it's crucial in this world where we exist basically in the metaverse to get away from the screen and you know i know brett weinstein and heather hying have said this you get out into nature take a walk get out into the air you've got to get away from the screen to to get back to freshness and reality because to some extent we already do live in the metaverse twitter is for all the people that don't want to say it's the real world it kind of really is and that's maybe a red pill that folks need to take um a little bit and so getting out and being active is crucial not sitting for too long at the screen is is crucial is crucial Mm -hmm. Which is why you should subscribe to my podcast so you have something to listen to while you're out in nature. And uh, JD, do, do you do uh, other media? Do you have a uh, like a lecture series floating around out there on? Uh, so I've been I've been thinking about doing so. I have uh, a very increasingly active Twitter feed, and now I've done the Substack, which has come uh, as well. And, you know, I'm trying to find time amidst, again, being continuing to be in the institutions where I have to pump out my own work in the quote unquote scholarly journals and editorial responsibilities of my own. But I'm looking more and more towards establishing collaborations with, uh, you know, people like yourself who, who are really speaking to the public in ways that are meaningful and and valuable. Um, uh, and, and, I think that might be the bridge to rectifying some of this is connecting with people who maybe not are in the institutions or who were and who are no longer there with people who are still in and making these types of connections. So right now I'm increasingly using my Twitter feed and, and my Substack to bridge that gap while simultaneously existing within an institution. And that's that can be very dangerous as we well know but i'm willing to walk that line and one 
you know, one person who's been very inspirational to read and listen to has been Barry Weiss because she's basically said, you know, you have to stand up for your principles and you have to, if you have the ability to, to do that. And I do fortunately, um, to, to do that, to do that. And you're going to make mistakes along the way, but mistakes are part of the process and you need to be okay with that. As long as you don't get uh, summarily executed and you can live, live to air another day. Correct. Or vaporized or canceled or, or run out of town. But, um, you, you have to walk that edge to, mm-hmm. to really make a difference. And I think that's where we are now. And I think that's what people are realizing and waking up to. And that really probably motivated, you know, Barry and her colleagues to develop UT Austin. And it's motivating me to be the way that I am and, you know, the valuable work that, that you have done in the wake of Evergreen has been hugely, I think, influential and, and eye-opening for many. Um, and so I think this needs to continue to, to really figure the situation out. Well, Godspeed us all. Um, thanks for uh, allowing me to randomly invite you to my show and, and get to poke around your brain. I, I, I feel enriched and... Uh... There's a lot of things that I was thinking about with regards to attachment that um, well, I was useful in my in my previous career. Um, so it's great to to revisit that stuff, and maybe we can have another conversation about the vicissitudes of that a little bit further at some point. Well, thank you, Ben. And I mean, I, I um, this is really a, a sort of a watershed moment for me because I've really gotten the opportunity to come onto a podcast that has scale and that I valued and, you know, I've already been a subscriber. So this is sort of the next step for me. And and Mm. you've allowed me to take that in a way that, you know, is unique for me because like I said, existing with inside the institutions and then coming out and speaking more broadly and, and unconstrained or unfettered has been a a very eye opening experience. and, And I really appreciate you, you inviting me sort of ad hoc the way you did. You're the uh, you're a hybridized intellectual. I try to walk that line as best that I can, but I'm always looking for critical feedback, and and mm-hmm. uh, I look forward to to uh, our off channel remarks on what you thought. So <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Let's wrap it up and uh, let everybody know that you can contact JD through Twitter. I'll link his Twitter and his Substack in the description. So thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Ben, and have a great evening. <laughs>